Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, have you, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely, genuine, eh, genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Thank you, JP. Let me encourage you to take your copy of scriptures if you weren't already there and go to uh, that text that JP just read for us. If you are using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats, it's page 981. So before we dive in the sermon, last week I gave you an update on the candy corn, and I showed you this guy, and in, in joking, I drop-kicked him over there, candy corn, I repent. <laughs> they have multiplied.
They have taken over my office. Someone help me. Somebody help me. <laughs> right? So I repent. We have seven of these things. And then, and then you know, uh, someone had this for me. Um, these are little dish rags and coasters. And, and then I'm, I'm happy about this. These are cookies that are like this. And then someone had the audacity to throw in these terrible Oreos as well. So, so anyway, you know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that uh, the church loves me so much, and uh, uh, it's a lot of fun. So uh, I had to give you that quick update on that there. Here, buddy. You want to grab this for me? So there you go. You can't eat the cookies. You got to listen to the sermon. So, okay. All right. All right. Very good. Ten years ago, as October 7th of 2012, I walked up these steps for the first time to preach God's word to this church. Uh, the church was looking for a new pastor, and uh, I wasn't a candidate yet, but uh, I was in the process of being pulpit supply first. I had had some interactions with Wayne, and um, then uh, uh, they asked me to come in and fill the pulpit. And October 7th, 2012 was uh, the first time that I did that. And the reason why I tell you that is that uh, it was this text here that we are in today that I was asked to preach from. The church was going through Philippians 10 years ago, and they assigned Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 at the time. I'm going a little bit further today. But uh, here we are 10 years later, almost uh, just a couple weeks past that, and we're back in the same text. And I, I shared that because it's just a... Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to preach God's Word. And uh, when I, I pulled the sermon notes from that, uh, that first sermon uh, 10 years ago, and I looked at how I had outlined it and, and, and taught, and, you know, it was, uh, I remember studying for that and just not knowing what the Lord would have, not knowing if the Lord was going to move my family up here or not. And uh, you know the story. Uh, um, I became the 37th pastor of Memorial Baptist Church. The church started in 1855, and so we've had a couple pastors a- along the way, and uh, it's been a joy to be here. Uh, February 1st was uh, the actual calling of the first day of being here, so that's coming up here. But I just was reflecting on that in, in my study this week as um, the last 10 years of being with my family here. I'm so grateful for it. Family loves me so much that just inundates me with candy corn. Uh, so, so grateful for this relationship that we have. And we get to be back in the same text. Now, it's important that we think about that because it's like, well, you're just, you know, going to preach the same sermon? No, no. I mean, this is the beauty of God's Word, is that we, we look at the text and we can see, okay, where are we at? Where are we at right now? 2022 is completely different than 2012. Uh, the truths of the text are still the same. That doesn't change. What the, what the initial you know, uh, purpose of the text is, is the exact same. But where we're at is different. And so we make different applications to that. And this is just such a beautiful text here. Is, you know, we could go through so many different ways. And just by illustration, we could look at the same chapter in different ways. I don't know if some of you maybe have studied rhetoric, with, uh, looked at Aristotle's, you know, the typical logos, ethos, and pathos. Maybe you've st- studied that a little bit. You can see that in chapter 2 here. I mean, you see chapters 2, verses 1 through 4, you kind of see the ethos of the argument, of Paul's rhetoric argument here. 
here, and that's this idea of his credibility or ethics there. And then in verses 5 through 11, then you kind of get into the more logic, and that's like the reason on uh, the logos there. And then in verses 12 through 18, well, we're going to find some of our time today here, that would be more of the pathos, or that would be the emotions and the feelings. And so you just see this masterful argument that the Apostle Paul is, is, is putting out there uh, in this text. So there's never a shortage of things to talk about in a text of Scripture, no matter how many times we come back to it. And so we're really looking forward to diving back into this again 10 years later with you. But here's the thing. If I'm going to summarize one thought that I'd like us to chew on and take away throughout the rest of the week here after spending time in this text, it would be this, that we must be a church that follows Jesus together, okay? We must be a church that follows Jesus together. We're going to unpack this. We've got two points today, and we're going to look at what it has to, where we can, what we can get from this passage of Scripture. But let me pray and ask God's blessing, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, Again, I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be able to continue to preach to this church and this, this family that I love so much and just grateful for them. And uh, thank you that we can uh, look at this, this text of Scripture even just 10 years later and, and we can see it still is relevant to us. It still is what we need. It is still uh, food for our souls. And uh, we just sang a song, Speak, O Lord. And that's what we want. We want to hear from you. We want to hear from your word today. And the only way that that's going to happen is by your Holy Spirit's power and enablement. Um, No amount of rhetoric, no amount of preparing, no amount of illustrations or outlining or studying can communicate spiritual truth in the way that needs to be communicated. That is solely in the arena of the Holy Spirit. And that is what we're, 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 we're leaning on. We're leaning on you, Holy Spirit, to, to teach us, to guide us, to remove distractions from us. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm asking you, that you, Holy Spirit, that you would help me speak in a way that is helpful uh, to this congregation. And um, so, Lord, at the end of the day, may this be a time that where we have spent... Um, uh, time together in your word has been, it's been helpful and it's been encouraging and convicting and rebuking and all these at the same time. So again, we're leaning on you for all things. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So if we're going to be a church that follows Jesus together, what does that mean, okay? Or how can that happen? So I told you there's two points. First of all, following Jesus requires decisive effort, okay? We see this in the text, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only my presence, but much more my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Remember what's happening here. Remember the Apostle Paul, he is under house arrest. He's in Rome under house arrest. If you want to find that, where that happens, that would be Acts chapter like 28, okay? And so we know that he was there. He was under house arrest. Um, he was waiting uh, uh, to stand on trial uh, for, um, and uh, that's what he was waiting for. So he was, he was there. He was chained to a prisoner or to a, um, uh, a jailer. And uh, you know, he could have, Acts, the end of the book of Acts says that he could have visitors. And so he did. And he had people coming and he was teaching them. But while he was in prison, um, he, he had heard that there were some other people that were preaching in Rome. But they were preaching in a way that they were telling the truth about Jesus. But they were doing it in a way uh, to kind of put Paul down because they were jealous of him. And he talked about that in chapter 1. We also know that this is in many ways a thank you note. This is the thank you note that Paul is writing to go send back to the church of Philippi so that he can thank them for the gifts that they gave him. They sent him gifts to help him in his imprisonment there under house arrest. 
and he, he's sending this back. And so in this text, he's going to send it back by the hand of Epaphroditus, and we're going we're to find out a little bit more about him in just a few minutes here. That's what's going on here. But as he's writing this thank you note, he's an apostle. I mean, this is Paul. He's not going to just write thank you and then, you know, seal the envelope and put it back. He's got to say something to this church that he loves so much. He, he really genuinely cared for this church. In fact, in chapter 4, he's going to call them his joy and crown. He just loves this church. He loves these people so much. And so, but as he's writing back to them a thank you note, he's encouraging them. And he's giving some admonition along the way here. And here he's saying, listen, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, notice that he doesn't say work for your salvation. That's a very important distinction. He doesn't say work for it. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That takes decisive effort on our part. One of the things that we, we talk about all the time is we talk about this idea of how you become a Christian. And, and a theological term for that is justification, okay? It, it's this idea of being declared not guilty. Even though you are guilty for the sins, you're then declared not guilty. And, and we see this in passages like Romans chapter 5, okay? Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since you uh, have been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5, 1. This, this concept of we were once dead and now alive. We just saying that, right? Okay, okay. Uh, you, my God, have saved my soul. Well, I once was dead and now I'm alive. That's justification. That's instantaneous. The moment we believe in God, the moment that, that we ask him to forgive us for our sins, that's something he has been working and, and, and he saves us from our sins. Justification. There's another theological concept that's called sanctification. Okay, now sanctification, if we look at justification, that's all of God and God's working and saving us from our sins. Sanctification, though, is something that we have a part in. We don't really have a part in justification because God saves us. The Bible makes that clear. But we do have a responsibility in our sanctification. What's sanctification? Sanctification is our spiritual growth. It's our growing in Christ. God did not save people just so that they stay the exact same. He saves people to transform them and to change them. In fact, the Bible ties that so closely that if you're not being transformed, then we should really question whether or not uh, uh, you have been saved from your sins. If there's not spiritual growth, the Bible's pretty clear that then we have to make sure that, that that's actually happened, okay? So we have sanctification here. This is what Paul is talking about here. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So he's basically saying here, embrace the hard work of sanctification, okay? This is not an easy task. Sanctification is not an easy road, okay? But notice that it is expected for every Christian. Every Christian is expected to be growing in Christ, okay? That's the, the, there's, there's no ex exception to that. God just says, if you're a believer, you're going to be growing in Christ. And so Paul hears what he's telling his friends, the ones he loves so much. He says, embrace this hard work of sanctification. And notice how he says to do that. He says, with fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? Often there's parallels in Scripture. So when you're reading these things, uh, it's usually that the, 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 they together make the point. The two words together make the point. Um, sometimes, and we see this particularly in prophetic literature as well, but it's really kind of across genre, is that if you, if when you're studying the words, and, and this is what's called, uh, we call, uh, it's called a word study fallacy sometimes where what we do is we'll just look at this word and we'll study lexical meaning. Then we'll look at this word and study lexical meaning, study this word and lexical meaning. Then we just try to come at, 
uh, an understanding of it. That's really good to do, by the way, these word studies, but you have to understand how they relate to another. Here is a situation where there's a parallelism. What's happening here is he's using these two terms, the second word to strengthen the argument of the first, but it's really one concept that he's teaching here. Um, so fear and trembling. What he's saying there is he's saying this is a like, tremendous awe of God is what he's saying. We do this in English, right? Um, if we were to uh, say, um, uh, okay, here's an illustration. Uh, yeah. Uh, every kitchen has the odds and ends drawer. Okay, right? You know, how many of you have an odds and ends drawer? Okay, all right. Okay, you have, you kind of have an idea what's in there, but you hope something's in there. Uh, you know, in our church kitchen, we have one. You know, I was looking like, you know, okay, you know, here's a spoon, a plastic spoon, and a screwdriver. You know, and all sorts of things. Now, imagine a thousand years from now, someone who reads the words odds and ends, and they do a lexical definition of odds. Okay, so it's it's not normal. Okay, all right, and then ends. Okay, it's not the beginning of it, and so they're trying to figure out what do you mean. Well, you and I know what we mean by this. It's just this mishmash of stuff, right? This is what he's doing here. He's saying, why are salvation with fear and trembling? He's saying, you just have to have this awe, this this awesome view of God is really what he's getting at here. But that takes hard work because we're so distracted. We get so distracted away from all the things that we should be focusing on here. But he says, embrace this hard work of sanctification. But then he noticed this. He goes in verse 13. He says, so, so verse 12 is man's responsibility. Then verse 13 is what God is at work in this. He says, for it is God who works in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. So, you know, sometimes we get this idea, this, this conversation about God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, and which one is which and everything. And this this is a great text of scripture where we say, hey, they're both right here, okay? They're both right here. And you say, well, how does that work together? Okay, so here's my theological under, you know, explanation of this. I don't know, <laughs> okay? I don't know how the God's sovereignty and man's responsibility always work together, but I know that the Bible teaches that, okay? And so we see that here in verse 12, this is our responsibility, but God is enabling us by his power, I was trying to figure out how to illustrate this, and I actually went back and I looked at my notes from 10 years ago, and I used an illustration, so I expect all of you to remember it, who were here 10 years ago, okay? All right, so here was the illustration I used 10 years ago in that sermon. It's like the difference between sailing and rowing. They both require muscular arms. So if you've ever been sailing, you've got to, to be hoisting the sail. In fact, my wife and I, we went on a, a sailboat uh, tour one time, and they asked people to help. And so I went up there, and I'm pulling the sail and pulling the sail. And, you know, I know, you know, I, you look at me, you understand I'm really strong. I know you see it. But still, let me just tell you, as I was pulling that thing, my arms were burning, okay? It was like really, and so we're pulling this thing, it was tiring and everything, but we got the sail up, and then all of a sudden, that the wind catches it, and then the boat starts going. Now, rowing, on the other hand, is that you're just constantly rowing. You remember the old scene from Ben Hur underneath, and they're just and they're just rowing and rowing and rowing. You see the difference there is that in rowing, in order for progress to be made, it's all dependent upon the strength of the rowers. But in sailing, there is effort required. But it's all dependent upon the winds and the current that God has provided. That's what he's getting at here. 
He's saying, this is, this is not rowing, this is sailing. Embrace the hard work of it, but at the same time, hoist the sail and let the currents that God has provided and let the, the wind that God has provided carry you along. So embrace this hard work of sanctification. We can continue on in this discussion, but there's a lot more ground to cover. So let me just go to the second one real quickly here. And this is the idea of live a disciplined life. Now, where I get this is verse 14. So we have our first command and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now we get a second command in the text, and this is do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent. Now the reason why I talked about this as being a, living a disciplined life is we have to resist what comes naturally to us because complaining is really the most natural response that we have. I mean, all of us, all of us are prone to complaint. And, and here, it's just what he says, do all things without grumbling or questioning. We could translate questioning with disputing there or fighting. And so he's telling the church, listen, don't be a church that's complaining. Don't be a church that's always complaining about this isn't right or that isn't right. And, and don't have these petty little fights with each other. Why is he bringing this up here in this juncture? Because he's talking about their growth. He's talking about their growth. Later on in chapter 4, again, he's going to talk about two ladies specifically. He's just going to encourage them to get along. And I don't think that was the only example, but there was obviously some things, as much as he loved this church, that there were some ideas of, of they just have to get along or they have to, to tone down the complaining a little bit. I told you that was a natural response because we, we really are prone to complain. And, you know, we're kind of equal opportunists when it comes to complaining. I mean, there's not a whole lot of things that we're not willing to complain about. We can complain about the weather because it's, you know, it's too cold and it's too hot, right? You know, for those of us that live in, in this climate where we live here, we get four seasons, right? And, uh, you know, that's as opposed to... Other climates where they only have maybe two seasons or something like that, rainy season or the dry season or whatever. And, and, as, and as much as I love the climate here, and I love living in the Midwest, I love four seasons, I think it just gives us more opportunities to complain about the weather, though, in a lot of ways. It's raining or it's, you know, and this, is, and this is the beauty about living in Wisconsin is that you can complain about being too hot, too cold, rainy, too dry all in the same day, you know, a lot of the times, right? You know, uh, you know, so here, here's the point is, is that uh, um, uh, we have to be a people that are not going to give in to this natural tendency to complain. And that takes hard work. That takes discipline. Think through it. It takes a lot of prayer, asking God to help us. But he says, don't be the complaining church. Resist what comes naturally to us. Now, the reason why this is so important is because complaining is far more serious than we tend to think that it is. We tend to kind of write it off. We tend to expect it. We tend to think that it's just kind of a natural thing. But if you study the scriptures, and let me encourage you to do that. I don't have time to walk us through this today. But let me encourage you, study what the scriptures teach about complaining. You're going to see that God hates it. You're going to see that it causes a lot of problems. You're going to see that God deals with it every time and says, do not complain. And why is that? In short, I will tell you, because it challenges, it says that we know better than God. 
is really what it's saying. When we're complaining about something, we're saying, God, I know better than you in this. And God says, don't do that because I have what's your best intentions in mind here. I, what is best for you is my plan. We could, again, spend a lot more time on that, but if we're going to um, work out our own salvation with fear and trembling here, we got to embrace the hard work of sanctification, our spiritual growth. We have to live a disciplined life. But then here we have to know that the results, they're definitely worth it. Look at this text again. It says here, in here it says, do all things without grumbling and complaining, verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so the day of Christ, in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. The results of living a disciplined life, of living, embracing the hard work of sanctification, of following Jesus, right, of following him, uh, um, the results of that are absolutely worth it. First of all, we have this idea of effective witness here. We're shining as lights in, the, in this world that's crooked and twisted. And in this generation here is what he says here in Philippians 2. We, we, we've given a couple of announcements today. We've got the, the Main Street trick-or-treat thing tomorrow. We have the Thanksgiving thing coming up. We're always looking for ways to, to, to engage our community. And, and let me encourage you, if you have ideas, you know, we're always open to hearing these things, right? So we want to engage our community, but more than just like tomorrow when we're handing out candy, it's not just about handing out candy. I think everyone understands that. At least I, I hope we all understand that. And it's not just about uh, uh, giving us you know, a bunch of sugar and, and you know, you know, putting kids on the fast track to diabetes, okay? That's not what we're about here. What we're trying to do is we're trying to build connections with people and have conversations. And so let me just encourage you, first of all, parenthetically here, would you please, please pray for good conversations tomorrow? Please, please pray for those. Pray that people will be ready and people would want to ask questions about God. But pray that we would have good entry points in those conversations uh, tomorrow as we're handing out candy and interacting with people. That's really what we're doing about here because we want to be an effective witness. But here what Paul is saying is that if you want to be an effective witness, you can't be a complaining church. You can't be the church that's always bent out of shape about stuff. You can't be the church that's always fighting about the stupidest things. I mean, this is one of the reasons why so many people that don't want to be part of a church anymore is because they've been to church and they see all the fighting and all the stuff and the things that just don't matter that people focus on here. Paul is reminding the Philippians, and let me just remind you, I reminded you 10 years ago when I was someone that was just hoping that you'd give me a shot, and now 10 years later, I'm reminding you again, we can't be the complaining church. We can't be the church that's always fighting or anything like that. We have to be the church that's looking outward to people and trying to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the effective witness is one of the fruits of this as we're growing, as we're following Christ together, as we're doing this together. One of the fruits of this is if we do the embrace the hard work of our individual sanctification, then we're going to be together a greater effective witness in the midst of this wicked and twisted generation that Philippians talks about here. So not only is that there an effective witness, witness, though, is that as a result of this, but then he noticed, looking at verse 16, he says, holy fast to the word of, Christ, the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So if it was effective witness here, he's talking about efficient ministry. 
He's talking about this idea of, of he wants to be able to say, and when Jesus Christ comes back, he wants to be proud of the Philippian church. He wants to say, this church was growing. This church was, was, was following Christ. And he says, I didn't waste my time with this church. He says, I didn't do this in vain. Now, again, we, we, we read Isaiah 55 in the text. And look right at it during the songs about how the God's word will not return empty. And I believe that promise. And so I believe that any time we preach the word of God and we give gospel out, you know, God's not going to let that go to waste in some ways. But at the same time, we have an apostle here who said, listen, I want it to be so that the way you respond and the way you're growing and the way you're following Jesus, it means I didn't waste my time. You know, and this is, this, this is so true of any pastor, of any spiritual leader, is that it's not about personal gain. In fact, I know it wasn't about personal gain for Paul because he was willing to die. He was willing to, 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 to leave. And so it wasn't about that he wanted them to follow so they could build him up. He's like, I'm going to die. In fact, he talks about this in verse 17. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice offering of your faith. I'm glad to rejoice with you. So it wasn't like he was saying, follow, build this up, get more numbers in this church so then everyone can think of what a great leader I am. He wasn't willing to walk away. He was willing to die. It was about for their sake and for their effective ministry and effective witness, efficient ministry and effective uh, of witness. And I feel that here. I, 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 you know, I, I want to make sure that the time that we spend together here is efficient and that we're growing together and that we're following Jesus Christ together. At the end of 10 years, in the next 10 years or 20 years, whatever it is, I don't want us to look back and say, why didn't we grow? And again, I'm not primarily talking about numbers. I'm talking about how we're growing spiritually, individually. The numbers take care of themselves as far as attendance and stuff. Would I love to see more people? Sure. But that's, that's not my primary concern. My primary concern is, as a church, are we growing in our spiritual walk? Are you becoming a more mature Christian? Am I becoming a more mature Christian as the days and the weeks and the years go by that we spend together? We must be a church that follows Jesus together to see these great, wonderful results here. So the question is, is, uh, you know, how do we embrace this hard work of sanctification? How do we live a disciplined life? How will we have this effective witness and efficient ministry here? Verse 16 is the answer. Holding fast to the word of life, there's your answer. This is how that we are going to have effective witness and efficient ministry is if we hold fast to the word of life. Some people translate this. There are some texts, maybe if you, uh, I think if you have a King James Version, it might have uh, holding forth the word of life. Uh, there's been some debate about how to translate that. Honestly, they're tied together. The concepts are tied together. You're, you're not going to hold forth something if you're not holding fast to it. If, you're not gonna, if you hold fast to the word of life, you're going to give it out. Okay, so the concepts are tied together here. But how do, we, how do we do this? We have to be people who are committed to the word. That when we see what the Bible says, we obey it. We don't debate it. We don't say, well, I know the Bible says this, but we're not growing. We're not going to have an effective witness. We're not going to have efficient ministry if we're saying, well, I know the Bible says this, but no. We've got to hold fast the word, hold fast to the word of life. Some of you know that I, I, I enjoy history, and particularly the history of this church. I mentioned before I'm the 37th pastor, church started in 1855. 
I often, or I haven't in a while, but, uh, uh, you know, there's periodic times where I'll pull down church records and read through some of those things, and it's interesting to see some of the things our church did. Um, some of it was awesome and great. Some of it was not so great. Um, if you look on the hallway right by the, the, the men's room down this hallway over here, you'll see different historical documents. If you haven't looked at them yet, I would encourage you to do that. And, and you can read different things about one of my favorite things is that in the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, they would publish an annual report. We do the same thing. We give an annual report, have our annual meeting, things like this. One of the things that they did back then, I think 1909 was the last year, maybe 1910 was the last year they did this, is that they would list in the annual report everyone in the church who did not give financially the year before by name. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think so. Yeah, that's not something that the elder team is considering bringing back. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, and, you know, there's this poor guy. This guy, his name was on like three years in a row. Oswald Donkel is his name, okay? And I just always feel bad every time I see this guy's name. Because this guy probably was like 82 years old, had no money at all, and was barely getting to church. And they're like, you didn't give money, you know? So I look at our history and I see some things that I'm like, yeah, could have done better then. But I don't cast too many stones because in 100 years from now, people are going to probably look at things that I did and say, eh, I could have done better, right? But one thing that I saw a theme in our, in our church history documents, even though we had those mistakes and even though we did some things that probably shouldn't have been done, it wasn't the best decision or something like this, there's a statement like this in 1869, May 24th, 18, excuse me, 1879, says this, if, if you've gone through a church membership uh, thing with me, you, you've read this before. This is an entry from an annual report. There's a living interest in the study of God's word and an increased reverence for it in both church and Sunday school under the guidance of our pastor and Sunday school superintendent. Man, I want that to continue to be said here. That there's a growing, a living interest in the study of God's word and increased reverence for it. And, you know, by God's abundant kindness and mercy towards me, I get to be this lead pastor here right now, the main teaching pastor, and I'm doing everything I can. And please pray for me that I continue what that pastor in 1879 was doing of trying to get us as a church to follow Jesus together. And the only way we can do that is if we all approach the scriptures in the same way. This is what Paul said to the church of Philippi. This is what was going on in 1879. This is what's going on by God's mercy, I pray, in 2022 here, is that, um, that we are holding fast to the word of life. So two points today. First one is that following Jesus, uh, we said, requires decisive effort. We have to work together uh, collectively, together, individually and collectively to, to make that happen. Number two, following Jesus must be a team effort. Following Jesus must be a team effort. If you have one of the notes there, there's a really long quote there. I'm not going to read it and everything, but I published notes out there on the table. Uh, there's a really long quote there, but basically the essence of the quote is, I felt that was really good that some of you might want to have it, but um, uh, it might be good for you to, 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 to read through this uh, later on. But basically the essence of it is that how, how God has designed our sanctification, remember that's our, our spiritual growth, it's designed to be part of a team, which is the church. 
That's really how he's designed it to be. Um, you know, can you grow by reading your Bible by yourself and praying? Absolutely, of course you can. Is God's design for us to be individually uh, pursuing our spiritual growth in life? No. God's design is for us to be part of a group of believers that are encouraging one another. A few weeks ago, we shared a prayer request about a church member going through struggle. Let me just tell you, I'm just so grateful to hear how church members have encouraged our brother, surrounded our brother, and, uh, and, and, and continue to do so. And we, and we need to continue to do it. We need, we all need each other, not just that situation. We all need each other here. And we see this. He, he says in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. So that I, may be too, that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not, all, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. So as we think through this idea of a team, it's got to be a team effort. There's two categories here that really Paul kind of highlights here. This isn't exhaustive. It's just what he highlights here. First of all, he highlights the all-stars on the team. Okay, is what he says here is the all-stars on the team. And of course, he's talking about Timothy and then Epaphroditus there. He says that uh, these are people who are standing out. Uh, he says, and look what he says about Timothy, is that, that he, there's no one like him, and he's got proven worse, okay? Um, this, this was somebody who, who, who uh, the apostle looked to and said that he has proven over time that he will be there, that he is growing. Remember, uh, uh, Paul uh, wrote to Timothy and says, let no man despise your youth, but be an example of the believers in word and faith and conversation, charity and spirit. He says that this was a guy who was dead set on following Jesus. He didn't have the, the, the pedigree. Uh, in fact, we think that uh, he, uh, he lost his father. Either his father was an unbeliever and his mother was a believer or his father was deceased. Uh, we don't know exactly. So he either grew up without a, a father or his father was not a believer, but his mother was. So it wasn't the easiest either way for him. It wasn't something like he, he came from a long generation of, of, of people, of Christian men in his family. But he was someone who, who Paul took him under his wing and influenced him. And then Timothy began to influence other people. This is what Paul told Timothy to do in, in, in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy where he says, commit to faithful men who will teach others to do, others, do the same to others also. So we have this, this, this Timothy here. But then he moves on to Epaphroditus here. So Timothy was proven, and he had no one like him. But Epaphroditus, he was willing to risk everything. He was the guy who was not going to hold anything back. And, and it, it says there that he, in verse 25, he was a fellow brother, a fellow worker, fellow soldier. We could take time to look at every one of those descriptors, but we won't. He was a messenger, minister to his need. Remember, this was the guy that the church at Philippi gave the letter, gave the support to, to take to Paul. But then we read here that, that Epaphroditus, after he delivers the message, he gets sick and gets so sick, he's about to die. And he finally recovers, but he spends time with, with Paul while he's under house arrest there. And now this is the occasion where he's sending Epaphroditus back with this letter that we're reading and studying. He's sending it back to the Philippian church, thanking him. But he's, he's telling him how appreciative he is of this all-star called Epaphroditus. 
But I think we can learn the fragility of life there. We can be willing that, that honestly, uh, the people that, that are standing out, the people that are working hard for God, they can be gone tomorrow. They can be gone tomorrow. This is what Paul was wrestling. He says, you know, I'm so glad God chose to save them lest I would have sorrow upon sorrow. You know, who, who's going to fill the spots? As people grow and then they age and then they, they pass away, who's going to fill those spots in our church? You know, in our announcement time, Lisa mentioned, you know, we, we lost two men. Uh, uh, one was a current deacon. One had served as a deacon for many years here prior. And she mentioned, you know, we lost two men this year and they, they were our carvers, right? They, they carved the turkeys, Who's going to fill their spot? And I'm talking more than just carving turkeys. You know, th- this is what we got to be thinking about here. Is that, you know, when you look at the fragility of life and you look at this all-star here, you know, because that brings up the second category. So we have this all-star here, but, but not only that, there's empty spots on the team. That's what he talks about here. Did you notice that? He says, for I have no one like him, verse 20. Verse 21, they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. Who is he talking about there? Who's he talking about? Did, did you have that question pop in your head? You should. As you're reading, those are the questions that should be popping. Who's he talking about here? Well, I'll tell you who he's talking about there. Remember in chapter 1, he's talking about the believers in Rome who are, they're preaching a good message about Jesus, but what are they doing? They're, they're railing against him. They're so distracted of that, against Paul. He's saying that the church in Rome had gone to the place where they were, they were so complaining. They were so infighting with themselves and things like this. He says, listen, and they were so focused on, on whether or not they were getting prominence over Paul and everything that their effective witness was diminishing. And he says, they're all seeking their own interest. He says, there's empty spots on the team. And it hurts. Now, the game continues on. I remember when I was in high school, I played basketball. And uh, there, was a, there was a time we were in a tournament and uh, we, were, we were really not expected to go far in the tournament. We didn't have the best of teams. But, you know, I mean, as, as it goes sometimes in sports, a team kind of gets, you know, gets hot and starts winning games. And that was our team. We started winning some games. And, and so we advanced to the next round and the next round. And it was one of those, those tournaments where it was, it was all like in one day. And so we, we just kept playing games. I remember calling my mom on the payphone. Remember those? Calling my mom on the payphone. And I'd be like, hey, we got another game. You know, she's like, okay, I won't come and get you. <laughs> you know? And so, and so as the game went on, the day went on, we were playing a lot longer than we had anticipated playing. We were getting more and more tired. Well, it came time we were playing in the championship game, right? We're playing the championship game. And we all were spent. We were so tired. We've been playing games all day. Now, the other team was too, but they were better than us, and we weren't expected to be there. You know what happens when players get tired in basketball? They start playing defense a little differently. Instead of real, really good, solid defense, they're just kind of smacking at the ball, right? You know, because they're so tired. Well, that's what we were doing. And so we're starting to get into foul trouble, things. Long story short, um, and we didn't have a deep bench at all. Uh, we only had six people on the team, there's five that needs to be on the court. One person follows out, so the sixth player was really happy. So then another one follows out. So now we only got five. Then another one follows out. So now we're only at four, and the game's still going on. I mean, we have to play the game. And so the ref comes over. He's like, what are we doing? We're like, well, we're just going to play four. 
And then another one falls out. So now we're down to three, okay? And so we're just praying for this game to be over at this point because the score is getting, you know, the gap is getting higher and higher. You know, um, it was one of those situations where we had to keep playing the game. But if we would have had five, you know, all of us in our 40s and into 50s and stuff, we think back on these games. And, and, and don't look at me like you don't do it for those of you who played sports. You do it too. And you think back and think, if we would have had five that game, we would have won. You know, that, it would have made all the difference in the world. Or, you know, if it wasn't the hometown refs or whatever the things that we come up with, all the excuses we come up with, if we would have five, we'd won. If we had a full team, we would have done so much better. Now, I don't know if that would have been true or not. But I can tell you this, we wouldn't have lost by as much as we did. You know, it's like that in the church. We keep going. But sometimes we have to play with four when we should be playing with five. Sometimes we had to play with three when we should be playing five. And so my, my, my challenge to us is as a church is that we don't have empty spots. Now, what, what am I talking about here? Well, I'm talking about that we're just not content to be happy consumers rather than sacrificial servants. Now, again, what does that mean? It, 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 because we have both in our church. We, we have the all-stars. We also have the empty spots. We have those who have proven worth and are willing to risk much to serve God, but we also have empty spots. And so some people, you know, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, what does that mean then? And how do we fill that? Well, I mean, a conversation could be like, well, what ministries need help? And that's a good question. You can ask that. We can talk about that. But a better question is, you know, here's a ministry that I would love to think through with the church leadership here. And I would love to help push it forward. Let's talk about this together. You see, we can't come up with all the needs and the ideas, right, as leaders. Um, we know that some of you have passions. We know that some of you have desires and things like that. Let me just encourage you to talk with us about that. Maybe we'll find a way to make that happen, okay? Uh, we need to be a church that is growing together, reaching out to our community. We're following Jesus, but we have to do it together, we can't be doing it in isolation because if you're doing this over here and I'm doing this over here and someone's doing this over here, we're not a family. We're not really a church. We're just people that come together once a week and then go back and do our own thing. And there's nowhere in the scriptures is the church ever described that way. Okay? So I'm just encouraging us. I'm just looking at the text as by God's design and his plan that we're here. So I'm just encouraging us that we be that church that follows Jesus together. So how are you helping someone follow Jesus? Who are you investing in? What relationships are you developing and you looking around and saying, you know, we've got these, these other people here. I want to encourage this brother. I want to encourage this sister. I need to support this person. I need to spend time with that person. I, I'm willing to sacrifice a day to go and help this person. I, you know, I heard a story of, uh, of uh, you know, someone just casually mentioned to me, not looking for any glory at all, uh, someone mentioned that uh, one of the widows in a church that uh, they were mowing her lawn for. Her. My heart, my pastoral heart just was like, yes, that's what we need to be doing, right? Okay, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, you know uh, say that that's, that never happens or anything. I'm just saying that it has to happen more, those types of things, okay? So we must be church that follows Jesus together. Who is helping you? Who are you reaching out to? All of these things, this text points us to be this church where we are following Jesus together, okay? Got to do it together. Well, we have the table here, and you know, eating and drinking is much more than just, in particular at the Lord's Supper here, is much more than just ingesting food. 
There's a camaraderie. There's a social element to eating together. There's a connectedness. There's a, a partnership. And so when we eat and drink together today, I, I just want you to, to have the sense of, that the people that you're eating and drinking with this morning, these are people that should be investing in you and you investing in them. Now, you may not have the same level of relationship, and I get this, and I also get that there are some people that are more extroverted than introverted. I understand all that. But nowhere in the Scripture says a personality type keeps us from being the type of person that is connected to other people, because all of us need other people in our lives. And